King Charles I lost his head twice. The second time, of course, we all know about. It was on a scaffold in 1649. But the first time, when he was the Prince of Wales, is much less well known. As a 23-year-old, wearing a wig and a very dodgy beard, a false one, and taking the name of Mr. Smith, he rode across the whole of France with three companions and arrived in Madrid completely unannounced. It was a mad and incredibly dangerous thing for the only surviving son of a king of England and Scotland to do. And my lecture this evening tells the story of that madcap adventure and reveals why it was so important in shaping the early Stuart court in England. Well, my story actually starts in the second year of the reign of James I. Protestant England had been isolated from the Catholic powers of Europe ever since the excommunication of Queen Elizabeth by the Pope in 1570. And in fact, England had been at war with Spain for 19 years. The Treaty of London, signed in August 1604, ended the war that had dominated England's politics for nearly two decades. Spanish territories spread across more or less the whole of Europe, including most of Italy, and although France wasn't formally at war with England, travel abroad anywhere in the mainland of Europe was dangerous and ill-advised. Negotiations for the Peace Treaty of London took place at Somerset House in a series of protracted meetings commemorated at their conclusion by this wonderful and very well-known painting. It shows all the participants of the peace treaty on both sides. James I signed the treaty in London, but the plan was for King Philip III of Spain to ratify it in person in Spain, in the presence of Charles Howard, the Earl of Nottingham, and around 500 English courtiers. And here you see Charles Howard. This doesn't work. He's the one with the white top on, second um, to, to the window on the right-hand side. And of course, he was the man, uh, the admiral, who had led the English fleet to the defeat of the Spanish Armada. So it was quite a nice symbolic uh, moment when he was chosen to, do, to lead the ratification. So this vast English uh, embassy uh, made its way to the court of King Philip. And because this was the first time Europe was open for uh, such a long time, it was the most splendid and extravagant appearance of the English court abroad since the Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520. A trip to Spain was a journey to visit the centre of the European world the capital of Europe's largest and most powerful empire. And as the English wagon train of 800 mules made their way across the sun-scorched landscape, the cream of the Jacobean court were exposed to a novel set of cultural influences. They assembled at Valladolid, 
the Castilian city to which King Philip III had moved his court in 1601. As the capital of Castile, it was a fine place with an ambitious but unfinished 16th century cathedral and many large houses, churches and colleges. The royal palace was originally a private mansion built between 1526 and 1534. And in 1600, it was acquired by the Duke of Lerma, who sold it to King Philip III the following year. The palace remains, but it was, uh, it's been much altered from its 17th century form, and it's now a military headquarters. I'm showing you an old postcard of it here. Um, since the postcard was uh, made, there have been further um, alterations to it, um, er eroding more of its historic character. But what the English visitors saw um, was this. A double courtyarded residence with an early Renaissance-style architecture, very similar to Henry VIII's houses in England. Much smaller than Hampton Court or Greenwich, but I think very familiar to the Jacobean courtiers in the arrangement of rooms which graduated from the public to the private quarters of the king. It must have been an immensely exotic and exciting time because the Spanish laid on magnificent entertainments, a triumph, bullfights, a tournament, a parade, masks and feasts. It was noted by the English visitors that the royal palace was, and I quote, furnished with many excellent pictures, all the good ones, made by the Italians or out of Italy. Well, despite embodying the future hopes of king and country, in his teens, uh, James I's second son, Prince Charles, who you see here, was a lost figure at court. He'd been robbed of his elder brother, Prince Henry of Wales, in 1612, and the following year, his beloved sister Elizabeth had married Frederick IV, elector of the German Palatinate. When they left England, Charles was left to his own devices at St. James's Palace, where he continued to receive his princely education devised for him by the king. James made little or no effort to involve him in the governance of the land, and Charles had no political influence. Worse still was the fact that in 1614, the king's licentious eye fell upon a new favourite, George Villiers, who you see here, who accelerated himself into James's affections and capturing them completely by early 1616. Charles was now more than ever a bystander at court. His father's attention completely captured by his new love. Soon, the king had adopted Villiers as his son, so he called him, and the king became Villiers's dear dad. The only way forward for Charles was to join this new extended family as its junior member, which is what he did in 1618, being called by both of them Baby Charles. For the last six years of James I's reign, England was effectively governed by this triumvirate 
of men. Well, after the death of his brother, Charles became the focus of intense speculation about his marriage. These centred on the possibility of him marrying Philip III of Spain's daughter, the Infanta Maria Anna, who you see here, a project which had strategic benefits to both nations, but which was beset with problems. The marriage was promoted by the Spanish ambassador in London, Don Diego Saramento da Encuna, Count of Gondomar, and also by George Digby, Earl of Bristol, the English ambassador in Madrid, who painted such an attractive picture of the Infanta that Charles completely fell for the idea of marrying her. In early 1623, with marriage negotiations bogged down in matters of religion, Charles and Buckingham conceived a plan to appear unannounced at the Spanish court in Madrid and win the hand of his, the princess, blasting away the contractual niceties. Like his dead brother, Hen, uh, Henry Prince of Wales, who had been obsessed with chivalric exploits, Charles had been seized with visions of chivalry and romance and saw himself embarking on a princely quest to win his bride. And this quest may have been given additional romantic allure by the fact that his father, as a young king, had made the hazardous journey across the North Sea from Leith Docks in Edinburgh to rescue his bride uh, in Norway, as she was then, um, Anna of Denmark, in uh, 1589. But the young Charles's uh, scheme was infinitely more perilous than the choppy sea crossing braved by his father. It was winter and it was Lent, and Charles and Villiers planned to ride incognito across France with only three servants arriving unannounced at Europe's most splendid and formal court, wearing nothing but their riding clothes. Well, in March 1621, King Philip III had died, and his heir, Philip IV, was a youth of just 16, dominated by his tutor, Gaspar de Guzman, Count of Olivares. Philip's was an enormous but fragmented monarchy that stretched across the world. And you see the European part of his empire here coloured in green. In Iberia alone, he wore three crowns, and to these had to be added sovereignty over the Spanish Netherlands, the Duchy of Milan, the kingdoms of Naples and Sicily, and of course, the territories in the New World, somewhere off my map over there. Philip was El Rey Planeta, the Planet King, an epithet that not only referred to his vast territories, but to his personal glory because Olivares ensured that Philip was a model of princely magnificence, reserved, dignified, pious, and excelling in all princely virtues from hunting to connoisseurship. 
the reception the Prince of Wales would receive at this mighty court, breaching every known diplomatic protocol, was completely unknown. Now, the importance of the eight months that Charles was away from England can't be overestimated. The Prince's trip was no weekend mini-break. He lived at the Spanish court for five and a half months, completely immersed in its etiquette, entertainments, architecture, and observing firsthand its religious practices. To get there, he had, of course, travelled across France, and his first stop was Paris, where he'd spent a day sightseeing. In fear of being unmasked, he and Villiers, uh, who were travelling as Jack and Thomas Smith, rather unimaginatively, uh, bought new periwigs and, in disguise, obtained access to the French court at Louvre. There, they saw the Queen Mother dining in public, the king uh, in his gallery, and the queen and her ladies practicing for a mask. Leaving Paris, they embarked on a 10-day, 500-mile dash for the Spanish border, which they crossed, and three days later, on March the 7th, they uh, reached Madrid. Having ridden on ahead, Charles and Villiers arrived at the house of the English ambassador to the Spanish court, the first Earl of Bristol, with only one servant. His surprise was absolute, and his consternation was extremely deep. Madrid, uh, which you see here in a 16th century view, had become the principal seat of the Spanish court in 15. 61, and had begun to acquire the appearance of what I think we would today call a capital city. It was not a particular, uh, particularly a promising location. At the centre of the landmass, if you think of it in, in, in your mind, in the middle of that big uh, bulge uh, of uh, the peninsula, it had a very meagre river, it was boiling hot in summer, it was freezing cold in winter, but nevertheless, by 1623, there were some 10,000 private houses, including many fine mansions belonging to the nobility. King Philip III had commissioned his court architect, Juan Gomez de Mora, to build a huge civic square, symmetrically lined with houses above uh, arcades. This, the Plaza Mayor, according to Sir Richard Wynne, one of the English sent by sea to attend Prince Charles on his arrival, was, and I quote, the only thing in that town which a man could stand and look at. A broad street, the Calais Mayor, led up to the Alcazar, the royal residence, situated in a large medieval fortress on rising ground to the west of the city. Well, Bristol, in conference with Gondomar, who was in Madrid at the time, decided that Villiers should pave the way with King Philip, and he was taken by Olivares to the Alcazar, where, by the back stairs, he was ushered into the king's private apartments, where he had an audience with the 18-year-old monarch, 
And um, this, if you see on this facade here, there are three towers. The one on the right uh, uh, of those three towers uh, contains the private staircase up which Buckingham uh, um, Villiers, who then later on became the Duke of Buckingham, um, went to see the king. The Spanish court was gripped with a crisis of etiquette. Charles couldn't possibly meet the king's sister, Maria Anna, without considerable preparation. And so it was arranged that he should first spy her out of a chink in a shuttered carriage, the princess wearing a prominent blue ribbon to mark her out from her ladies. She was beautiful, and the glimpse of his future wife further inflamed Charles's desire. The protocologists had convened a council to determine the proper steps for the reception of this English prince at court. The cost of doing so would be enormous, and it was joked that Charles had managed to sack Madrid without an army. Before he left England, uh, James uh, had furnished uh, Charles with letters of presentation for uh, King Philip which explained that his son was what were described in these letters as a prince, the sworn king of Scotland. This ingenious piece of mumbo-jumbo was to guarantee that Charles would be treated as a sovereign and not just as a prince of the blood. And it worked. The preparations at the Spanish court were advanced on the basis that Charles had equality with the king, and members of the Spanish royal family. And the key to this was his introduction to Madrid by the way of a public entry, the mechanism by which Spanish royalty took the public stage. And on March the 16th, Charles was accorded this honour. And remarkably, we have a print showing it happening. And here you see Charles and Philip um, passing through the carefully swept and richly decorated city streets beneath a canopy, um, carried high by 12 gentlemen, you can see that in the foreground, accompanied by drummers and trumpeters, and surrounded by foot guards. Behind them uh, rode uh, Olivares um, and Villiers and an assortment of ambassadors and nobles. And this print uh, shows them arriving at the Alcazar, where they were met by the Queen in uh, her audience chamber. Charles was then escorted to the Prince's quarter, where he was delivered to his very bedroom by the King. And uh, with, uh, uh, within an hour, the Queen's Lord Chamberlain arrived uh, laden with valuable gifts. Now, although the Alcazar of Madrid was an ancient Morris fortress in origin, it had been adapted and uh, uh, extended by the Habsburgs to form a large uh, double courtyarded palace with a new facade which had only been completed two years before the arrival of Prince Charles. And I think you can see it very clearly on this uh, painting. You can see the new facade planted on the front of the medieval um, palace. Uh, Sir Richard Wynne thought that this facade, which you see here in this engraving, was very fair, although he thought the rest of the palace was 
not worth much observation. Lord Roos, who had seen it only a couple of years before, thought it not very large, but beautiful, commodious and stately. In truth, I think this facade was more impressive by, by its size and its apparent regularity than by any sophistication of its architecture. But in plan, the Alcazar would have been uh, of a familiar type to the English visitors. It comprised two courts, which I think you can see there, one for the king on the left-hand side and the other for the queen on the right-hand side. The royal family occupied the principal floor and below were not only offices of state, but there were various commercial em enterprises tucked in the vaults. Access to the royal apartments was via a grand stair. You can see it marked there, great stair in the middle. So it occupied the block between the two courts and this gave on to an upper cloister which ran round the interior of each court. The first chamber on the king's side, marked A, just to the left of the great stair there, was for the royal guards. And this led to a smaller hall, which was where the king dined in public. That's marked B. Beyond this was the king's principal reception room, known as the antechamber, marked C. And in here, there was a canopy of state and a chair of state in which he received councillors and which on Maundy Thursday, he washed the feet of 12 poor men, a ceremony that uh, Charles uh, himself observed. Then came F, the principal audience chamber, uh, the camera, containing a ceremonial bed in its corner. Ambassadors were generally received in this room and uh, the royal councillors attended to kiss the king's hand. All these rooms I've described at the top um, left-hand corner of that courtyard were part of the outer rooms of the palace. Everything beyond the camera door was highly restricted in access. Only the gentlemen of the bedchamber and a small number of named court officials were allowed into the rooms on the left-hand side of this plan. And this actually was not at all unlike the Elizabethan court, where a tiny proportion of courtiers had access to Elizabeth I and Henry VIII's lodgings. The access that Prince Charles was given to um, Philip's private apartments on the west and southwest of the Alcazar was exceptional. Um, and on this side, you see to begin with, um, there are three small rooms for the private reception of ambassadors. And beyond these, at the end of a long gallery was the king's study. So right at the bottom there is N, the king's private study, where virtually no courtiers ever um, penetrated. But next door to N is M, which are the private back stairs, which led directly to Prince Charles's uh, quarters below. So his quarters were linked by a private staircase to the king's own uh, private um, study. Philip uh, generally ate alone, served by his groom of the stool in an alcove off the gallery, and I've marked that K, a little alcove you see there, and his bedchamber L, which is next door to it there, was only accessed by uh, the groom of the stool and a small number of menial servants. Spanish kings lived um, a much less private life than had become the norm across the rest of uh, Europe. 
Uh, on the south side were the great public rooms, the Grand Saloon um, and Q, um, the, uh, uh, um, the, uh, a new room which was built for hanging the king's um, picture collection in. Philip decreed that uh, Charles be served exactly as um, he was, and he, saw, he sent uh, uh, him a major domo to be in charge of his household. Uh, he enjoyed completely unrestricted access to these rooms on the left, and he was presented with two solid gold pass keys, which let him into every single room in the king's apartments, which he passed on to Buckingham, uh, to, to Villiers, to Buckingham, and to the Earl of Bristol. Um, the king saw to it that there were um, uh, entertainments every single day. In quieter times, and here you see um, Madrid, and uh, up here you see the Alcazar, um, and next to it you see the hunting parks, um, which uh, continued on the other side of the river. So he was taken um, hunting, uh, but there, was also, there were also um, bullfights, um, music pageants, feasts, firework displays, processions, picnics, tourist trips to places of interest, a fun-packed itinerary, in fact. Um, uh, on his third day in the Alcazar, the Prince of Wales was taken on a private tour of the king's painting collection. And uh, he was able to uh, e examine the 2,000 paintings uh, in the Spanish royal collection. Two of his servants, who had ridden across Europe with him, were in fact um, art historians, Francis Cottington and Endymion Porter. And they all took copious notes on the paintings they saw. Uh, Charles got very, very covetous and kept on dropping hints that he would like some of these paintings to be given to him. And in fact, uh, um, remarkably, he was in fact given this amazing um, Titian here, uh, the portrait of Emperor Charles V, which is now in the, um, uh, in the Prado. Um, various other uh, paintings were um, collected and bought um, on the open market in Madrid, the, um, the, the prince getting incredibly enthusiastic, particularly for the Chitians, um, and he packed this uh, beautiful and erotically charged painting by Titian, Woman with a Fur Coat, which is now in the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna, um, into his baggage. Charles also went to the Escorial, the colossal palace-cum-monastery 28 miles north of Madrid. It had been started by Philip's uh, grandfather and was a rather an odd building that combined um, a monastery, which you can see right in the centre of the plan, with a royal palace, which is a tiny little bit at the top. The English were rather uh, bemused by this um, and, in fact, uh, one of the visitors, Sir Richard Wynne, said this was never intended as a king's palace, but for the godliest uh, mon monastery in the world, which in fact it is. Well, at the end of their uh, tour, the uh, royal party and their swollen baggage train managed uh, to make their way across the hot plains to, um, uh, 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 to the coast. And... Uh, um, sailed back to England. But these negotiations for a marriage between a Protestant prince and a Catholic princess was never going to be straightforward. And nor were the European power politics that lay behind the dynastic alli uh, 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 alliance. Um, discussions were detailed, they were vexed, they were lengthy, and as uh, negotiations dragged on in Spain, 
And while Charles and Buckingham consumed 30,000 pounds, which is what they'd brought with them, uh, preparations were afoot in England to receive the Infanta. In fact, the day after um, uh, um, Charles and Buckingham arrived in Madrid, um, uh, there was a discussion at court about which houses uh, in London would be most suitable for receiving the Infanta and her entourage. And it was decided that uh, St. James's and Somerset House should be given to her, but her usual residence should be at St. James's Palace. And preparing St. James's Palace was going to be a complicated issue because it was necessary to provide for her Catholic religion. The Pope had granted a dispensation for her to marriage, marry a Protestant on the condition that her religion could be freely practised in her own establishment. And this necessitated the building of a new chapel. And both Somerset House and St. James's were inspected by the Spanish ambassador, who was insistent on the construction of new Catholic chapels immediately. And these were required by a distinguished panel of Spanish theologians, not just to be private chapels, but to be public churches, which were, and I quote from the document, sufficiently large in which all the divine offices may be celebrated and where Catholics may be buried with the ceremonies that are customary. Well, uh, work went ahead um, very quickly to try and construct a chapel that was satisfactory to the French theologians and would fit in with uh, the palace at St. James's. And you will all know that this building here was the building that eventually was uh, begun, but not completed at this point, because uh, as the Spanish match collapsed, and uh, uh, James and Charles started to be interested in a French princess, work slowed down and eventually halted. On March the 27th, 1625, King James died, and the day after, the Privy Council met at St. James's Palace to kiss the new king's hand. At first, as a mark of respect, Charles kept to his bedchamber, but uh, a few days later, he slipped through St. James's Park and took up residence at Whitehall. In 1625, Charles's reign started with a revolt against the behaviour of his father's court. A proclamation of May that year stated, and I quote, In the late reign of our most dear and royal father, we saw much disorder in and about his household by reason of the many idle persons and other unnecessary attendants following the same, which evil we, finding to bring much dishonour to our house, have resolved the reformation thereof. Charles was a small, neat private man whose world picture was ordered, moral, and hierarchical. He'd been repulsed by the Jacobean court's disorder, coarseness, and sexual ambiguity, and was uncomfortable with his father's lack of dignity and majesty. Within days of his accession, he reasserted court regulations that had dated from Tudor times, establishing regular times and days for all his activities 
a habit he kept to the end of his life. The emphasis on dignity and order was reinforced by his marriage to the moralistic and prudish French princess Henrietta Maria, and, crucially, by his experiences at the Spanish court. Because it was only two years before he came to the throne that he had been exposed to the extreme privacy and asceticism of the Spanish monarchy. Order, dignity and deference reigned in Madrid in a way that he had probably never thought possible in the chaos of James I's Whitehall. Returning to England, Charles even briefly adopted the extremely sober Spanish fashions of court dress. And this is a portrait that was uh, done immediately on his return from Spain, and he's dressed in this very, very sober Spanish fashion, which uh, had captured his imagination uh, at the Alcazar. No wonder John Chamberlain, a close and acute observer of the court, thought, and I quote, that the court was more straight and private than in former time. And in 1701, Sir Philip Warwick could call it the most splendid reg and regular court in Christendom. A slightly more sceptical observer was Lucy Hutchinson, daughter of the Lieutenant of the Tower of London. And she could recall that King Charles was temperate, chaste, and serious, so that the fools and boards, mimics and catamites of the former court grew out of fashion. But she also noticed that the nobility and courtiers did not quite abandon their own old debaucheries, but yet had the reverence to the king to retire into quiet corners to practice them. <laughs> well, historians are very rude, generally, about Whitehall Palace. It's generally considered to be incoherent, confusing, and old-fashioned. King James had had very little time for Whitehall, um, but... It was, in fact, a well-ordered, carefully maintained, and smoothly functioning royal residence. And when, in 1625, Charles came to the throne and uh, took control of um, Whitehall, what was in the forefront of his mind were the buildings he'd seen in Spain. In particular, the Escorial, which had made a huge impression on him and his companions. And so within just one month of his accession, it was common knowledge that he wanted to knock down all this and rebuild Whitehall um, in a more dignified manner. A drawing that's now at Chatsworth House shows a design which probably dates from that year, showing perhaps what was in the king's mind. We'll return in just a moment to discuss the king's plans for Whitehall. But in 1625, it wasn't just Whitehall that had been shown up by the Spanish king. It was London itself. Just over a month after Charles I came to the throne, he issued his first proclamation regulating building in London. Because he had seen firsthand how royal intervention in a capital city could shape it. 
he'd been profoundly impressed by the Plaza Mayor. And um, I've shown you this already, but here you can see, here is the, the, the great square in the centre of Madrid. Many of you will have been to see it. There's the Royal Palace. Um, and he'd been very, very profoundly impressed by this. And in, the, in this great square, he had been treated to the most spectacular festival of his stay, a tournament in his um, honour, uh, uh, attended by 50,000 people and memorialised in a series of paintings, one of which is here. So this is actually Charles being fated in the Plaza Mayor. It, this was the centrepiece of Philip's remodelling um, of uh, Madrid. Um, and you can see uh, the way that uh, people lived above a colonnade down below, and you can see people uh, looking out of the windows, watching the great festivals in the centre of the square. And in 1629, an opportunity arose for Charles to emulate the Spanish and French monarchs in London. The one part of the vast Westminster estate that wasn't held by the crown was the 40-acre area on the west side of Westminster known as Covent Garden. This was to be developed by uh, John Baron Russell, the first Earl of Bedford. As uh, uh, the opportunity rose, Charles I instantly took an interest in the development and viewed the site with Inigo Jones. The Earl's plans, he thought, weren't ambitious enough and he ordered um, Jones to take over the design. And as building commenced, Jones and the King continually um, interfered with the designs to try and achieve something that looked a bit like this. And in fact, that is exactly what was built. A new square, actually much more sophisticated and elegant than the Plaza Mayor. It was never a full square, of course, but um, it became the centre um, of the fashionable uh, West End. Well, King Charles's vision for a more majestic London came to a culmination with a series of very ambitious projects that would have transformed the status of London, which were brought forward in 1638, which I think was sort of the turning point in the king's life and reign. In July 1637, the previous year, the king had told his nephew, the elector Palatine, that he was the happiest king or prince in all Christendom. You would have thought that was a reasonable thing to say. There he is with extremely happy marriage, with children, his country is at peace, it's prosperous, um, and uh, uh, everything looked to be going well. But only 11 months later, this self-satisfaction had been completely shattered and he was involved in military preparations to go to war against his Scottish subjects. As a consequence, over the next three years, Charles was a much more visible uh, presence in his capital than he had been over the last um, decade. And he embarked on a series of schemes that were designed to assert royal magnificence and authority on his capital city. The most spectacular of these was a complete rebuilding of Whitehall Palace. The ideas that may have been briefly contemplated in 1625 were for the reconstruction of the Privy Gallery. But this scheme was for something infinitely more ambitious. 
which you see here. Uh, this involved building a vast new palace in St. James's Park and laying out a new road alongside the uh, River Thames. It's a huge rectangular building with 11 courtyards, one of which, as you see, was um, circular. This uh, uh, plan um, was almost certainly based on Charles's experience at the Escorial, which he had seen in 1623. It's also possible that his designs were based by, uh, uh, on a, uh, another um, Spanish uh, influence, um, a book published by a Spanish Jesuit um, uh, called uh, Juan Batista Villampando, um, which was a reconstruction of the Temple of Solomon. Um, and you see one of the facades here, but it also had a series of multiple courts. But what's certain is that Charles was very, very closely engaged in these designs. There were lots of uh, details that were, um, uh, that were uh, sketched out. But of course, uh, sadly, uh, England was on the brink of civil war and the Whitehall plans never progressed any further than on the paper on which they were drawn. But Whitehall was by far and away Charles's most favoured and frequently visited residence. In contrast to his father, uh, Charles moved to Whitehall wherever he had the opportunity. And Whitehall, um, when this is my reconstruction of the plan of Whitehall um, in the early part of the reign of uh, Charles I, had the most extensive privy lodgings, uh, private quarters, of any of the royal palaces. So the whole of the area from 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, 13, 12, 10, all those rooms there are his private lodgings and include this hugely long gallery um, here, um, which is numbered um, number nine. And these rooms, exactly like the rooms in the Alcazar, which he'd seen on his trip, became uh, the centre of his collecting activities. Soon after his return from Spain, he ordered his first inventory of paintings, including the Titian uh, that he had bought in Madrid. And uh, two years later, he began to commission and purchase large numbers of pictures. And in 1627, most famously, he bought the huge collection of uh, Renaissance paintings from the Duke of Mantua for nearly uh, £16,000. And almost all of these objects came to Westminster and were shown in these private rooms in uh, Whitehall and also in some private quarters in St. James's. Um, and perhaps the most famous uh, painting that uh, he commissioned from Van Dyck, uh, which is known as the Great Peace, was specifically uh, commissioned for the end of this great gallery here. It hung on that wall there, and uh, what it represents um, is the view that you would have actually seen if... There hadn't been an end wall and a painting on it because over his shoulder you can see Parliament. Um, you can see Westminster, the old palace of Westminster. And here is the king uh, with his wife and his children. A very domestic scene, but you've no doubt that he's the monarch. You've got his crown, you've got his scepter, and over his shoulder you can see, um, you can see Parliament. 
And these private rooms, uh, which you uh, see on, on the left-hand side here, were overflowing with works of art by um, a Titian, of course, but also Raphael, Correggio, and others. And the largest room in the privy lodgings, the king's cabinet, that's number 13, contained some 80 paintings, works by Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, but also bronzes, books, medals, drawings, and other works of art. And into the ceiling of this room, he set uh, Rubens's sketch for the ceiling of the banqueting house. So extraordinarily, you've got the actual banqueting house with Rubens's painting in, and then number 13, you have a room with a miniature version of the same painting uh, on the ceiling. Well, it's been a bit of a trope of historians to link royal art collecting and the display of power. But what is abundantly clear from this plan on the screen is that none of Charles I's collections were accessible to anybody outside his bedchamber and a few invited guests. And those uh, um, uh, people um, who uh, were allowed in um, could only see his art at Whitehall and St. James's. There wasn't any of the great collections at any of the other um, palaces. In fact, nobody outside this very charmed circle had any access to uh, either his high Renaissance paintings or his contemporary work, works of art um, by Van Dyck and others. In fact, the only contemporary painting publicly on show anywhere in any royal palace was the banqueting house ceiling. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the fundamental truth about Charles's court. It was private, it was inward-looking, and it was sustained for the pleasure and enjoyment of the king and queen and their closest friends. In fact, not at all unlike the world of Philip III and Philip IV of Spain. So, ladies and gentlemen, tonight I hope I have thrown a new complexion on the reign of Charles I. A picture of a man profoundly influenced by an eight-month stay in the Spanish court at the age of 23. Someone who wanted to emulate the dignity and order of the Spanish court, who, like Philip III and Philip IV, created private galleries of painting reserved only to himself and to his friends, who contemplated rebuilding Whitehall, inspired by Spanish designs and pushed through a remodeling of part of London based on a great square that he had seen in Madrid. All this and a great deal more about the Stuart age of art and architecture can be found in my new book published this very day. Um, and uh, it's called Palaces of Revolution. And uh, uh, in the acknowledgement ladies and gentlemen, you all appear. Because I'm extremely grateful, as always, to my audiences at Gresham College, who have provided through your incisive questioning uh, after my lectures all sorts of insights that I would never have thought of before. And there will be three more um, opportunities this year in our programme to contemplate 
the story of the Stuart Court. Um, uh, Professor Anna Whitelock will be talking about James I and the wider world. Uh, Dr. Anna Kay about uh, the interregnum. And myself about Inigo Jones. But for now, ladies and gentlemen, I will uh, end my talk and pass over for some questions. So the first question is quite a straightforward one. Did Charles speak Spanish? Um, I don't think so, no. He didn't. But of course, the Earl of Bristol did. Um, so you know, the ambassador. So there was a, you know, someone there to keep him company. And why was Charles given access to everything? What was special about him from the Spanish's point of view? Oh, well, it, this, is all about, this is all about equivalence of status. And this is why James I's uh, letter of introduction was so... A, disingenuous and so clever because he gave the impression that in some way Prince Charles was the King of Scotland. And uh, uh, the etiquette would therefore mean automatically, without any debate, any discussion, they are accorded equal status. Two kings, no question. And so um, it, was a, it was a clever ploy and it worked and of course all the doors, um, literally all the doors, opened with his magic gold key. I'd like to ask you what you think of Walter Janicek's comments that um, Charles's love of painting was so great, he spent so much money, he was the only king destroyed by his love of art. <laughs> well, you know, it's very, this is very, very interesting. Um, Charles uh, has got a very big billing for his collecting of paintings, and he's sort of known as the great connoisseur king, and uh, arguably the court of Charles I is better known than the court of any other English monarch because of the genius of Van Dyck, who captured it, and I've showed you a couple of the paintings there. He's such a great, great painter. But the reality of it, if you get down to the pounds, shillings, and pence, is fundamentally different. Because Charles I spent considerably more money on tapestry than he ever spent on painting. And he spent 10 times more money on, uh, on, um, on ships, on building ships, than he ever did on, build, on buying tapestry or paintings. And again, another 10 times more money on buying jewels and clothes for himself and his wife than he did on ships. So actually, if you look at the hierarchy of the luxuries that Charles I is buying, easel painting is right down at the bottom. And the reason that it uh, stands out today is the, 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 sort of the privilege that is given by uh, contemporary society, contemporary uh, art historians, and contemporary history to easel painting over all other types of um, artistic endeavour. So yes, he was a great collector of paintings, but, um, and you know, he absolutely loved them. But if you're looking at the money, and he did spend a lot of it, um, the, the paintings weren't the most expensive bits. Um, is there any link between the nursery rhyme, um, I had a little nut tree, nothing would it bear, and Charles of Charles's visit to Spain? Now this, ladies and gentlemen, is what I mean by <laughs> learning from Gresham audiences. I have no idea, but I am going to go home and I'm going to look it up, and um, that's a very interesting point. <laughs> Thank you very much. Was the collection, presumably it was dispersed afterwards, and we have uh, records of where all the paintings went, and that helps to sort of cement this uh, picture of him as a great art collector. Is that correct? Yes, of course. This is the, this is the amazing thing um, about uh, Charles I. I mean, there, there, there are two 
there are two huge inventories of royal possessions. There's one which is done in 1547 when Henry VIII dies, and there is one that's done in 1649 when, when Charles I is executed. They're about 100 years apart. And what it enables you to do in a really extraordinary way is see exactly how the royal collection um, developed over those 100 years. You can work out what it was that Charles I acquired. But as you say, very importantly, quite a few of the inventories taken after the king's death actually specify the room in which things are hung. And that is what enables uh, uh, me to be so um, convinced that the, uh, the, the modern and uh, Italian paintings were all in those private rooms and were not in the public parts of the palace. And it's the, um, it's the uh, evidence that we have, that, which we don't really have for, for um, Elizabeth I, um, and actually we don't really even have for Charles II. So it's a, you know, the, it's a unique snapshot um, provided by these extraordinary inventories. A, a fascinating story, thank you. Would you care to speculate on how Charles's life might have panned out if, if his marriage to the Spanish princess had actually somehow happened? Huh. Well, that's a, that's a tremendously good question. I mean, um, what I think is uh, very interesting is that in a way... Um, Henrietta Maria was able to slot just into the, uh, the cardboard cutout which said foreign Catholic princess because um, all the, the arrangements and uh, negotiations that had been going on with Spain were simply <coughs> clicked over um, and passed over to Henrietta Maria. And the papal dispensation was taken off of one and put onto another. The Catholic um, Church was taken off one onto another. The, the, um, the restrictions and the privileges allowed to the marriage were taken one to the other. So um, I suspect that actually things would have panned out very similarly. And of course, um, the really important thing about the, the Catholic marriage is that it contaminated Charles I's own religious policy and uh, in many ways led directly to the um, civil war. And to be honest, French princess, Catholic princess, Spanish princess, Catholic princess, you know, they were the same thing. I have one more question from the online audience and then I think we'll have to draw it to a close, Simon. Um, there are a great many equestrian portraits of Charles, both in paintings but also on British coinage. To what extent was this due to Spanish influence? Oh, um, I don't think that uh, it, it was really heavily due to Spanish influence. I mean, uh, equestrian portraits were, um, uh, you know, European-wide in the, in, the, in the 17th century uh, popular, and there are, there are uh, equestrian portraits of, of, um, of James the, the I. I think you've got a, um, a European fashion there for the portrayal of, of monarchy um, and actually aristocracy as well. And um, the king is uh, part, part, participating in a, in a European-wide sort of artistic um, iconography. Thank you very much, everybody.